Blog Talk Radio. Good evening and blessings and welcome to another installment of the Gist for Freedom of Faith. This show is produced by acclaimed historian, educator, and author Leslie Gist and serves as our weekly live online discussion to celebrate the African-American experience by honoring all the people, past and present, black and white, who with faith and focus are preserving our rich history through literature, the arts, the skilled trades, and the humanities. We thank you for joining us tonight, and we'd love you to be a part of tonight's discussion by calling in with your comments or questions to 347-324-5552. Hello, this is Shelley Gaines, the host of The Gist of Freedom, the July 29th, 2012 version, and our guest this evening is Arthur McFarlane II. He is the great-grandson of W.E.B. Du Bois, an American historian, civil rights activist, pan-Africanist, author, and editor. Um, Arthur, are you on the line? Yes, I am. Hi, how are you? Welcome. Good, how are you? Great, Thank great. You. It's wonderful to have you. And um, there's just so much history regarding your great-grandfather. And um, I think I'd like to start, start at the beginning of when he was born, where he was born, and then, you know, we'll go from there. Sounds good. Um, Grandpa was born in Great Barrington, Massachusetts in 1868. Um, he He died in uh, 1963. He had moved to Accra, Ghana, um, so he died there. Um, he was born uh, in Great Barrington, which is kind of like the southwest corner of Massachusetts in the Berkshire Hills. Um, he lived with his mom there alone. Uh, his father left fairly early in his life, uh, so he lived there with his mom uh, until his mom died, and then he left in Great Barrington to go to Fisk University. Um, so he went there first for school, and then after that he went to um, Harvard to actually he ended up getting a, a second degree at Harvard, a second bachelor's degree at Harvard because they demanded that, and then he uh, went on to, to do a master's degree and a Ph.D., and he's the first African-American to get a Ph.D. from Harvard. Okay, so, now, as I was reading, it's um, I don't know if people really realize that at that time in Massachusetts, I don't believe your father grew up with the uh, Jim Crow and the racism that um, was experienced down south, so when he went to Fisk, I guess it was a rude awakening as far as the treatments that blacks receive. Am I correct in that? Yes, and I mean I think he he responded uh, positively to being among uh, you know black people, and he wrote about that. But he also did experience, uh, as you say, a lot of that kind of Jim Crow um, discrimination. One of the things I think he learned from experiencing that was to the power and the strength of the black people who lived there who had been through slavery, who had been through uh, the things that his family hadn't experienced. Exactly. And then upon receiving the degree from Harvard um, University, the the Ph.D., I believe he, he taught he taught uh, at Wilberforce. Is that yes, his first his, job? Yep. His first job was at uh, Wilberforce in Ohio. And mm-hmm. uh Kind of one of the things that gets a little lost in that time frame um, of his getting his Ph.D. is he, he spends a couple of years at the University of Berlin, 
and it is it's there that he meets people like Max Weber and Karl Marx and those kind of folks, and ultimately learns a great deal about economics and sociology. Max Weber was uh, considered the father of sociology, and he brings all of that information, that knowledge, back to the United States. And uh, at first teaches at Wilberforce, then goes to uh, University of Pennsylvania and ends up writing the Philadelphia Negro um, mm-hmm. before he ultimately ends up at Atlanta University and does uh, takes a lot of what he's learned around sociology and economics and puts it to work in something that becomes uh, later known as the Atlanta Monologues. So, yeah, there's a lot of things that happen for him in his life. The Philadelphia Negro is, uh, I think, one of those great books that gets mm-hmm. overlooked a lot of the time. Uh, it's the, one of the first uh, major works of sociology, and it is, it is the first time a sociological study is done on African Americans in which he looks at the, the people in Philadelphia, the black people in Philadelphia, and makes some comparisons to what's going on for whites in Philadelphia. Mm-hmm. Um, he does that under the auspices of the University of Pennsylvania at the uh, invitation of Edith Wharton, um, mm-hmm. who is the Wharton Wharton School of Business folks there at University of Pennsylvania. So it um, it really is quite an interesting early period for him. He writes The Suppression of the African Slave Trade as his dissertation, which becomes a major work describing uh, the African, transatlantic African slave trade. Um, and then he goes on to the next major work is, is The Philadelphia Negro. And then, of course, uh, he writes uh, Souls of Black Book in 1903. Mm-hmm. Okay. And then... From there, Atlanta University? Yep, he goes to Atlanta University and he spends time there um, writing and, and working with a number of people. At Atlanta, there had been these uh, these conferences, these conventions, where a number of people would come to, to talk about uh, African Americans and Negroes in those days. Um, mm-hmm. And what he wanted to do, though, was to focus that. And so he focused the attention on specific aspects of what was going on for uh, for blacks in, in those times. And out of that comes then these yearly conferences around specific areas of, of black existence and life in the United States. And, and out of those come the Atlanta monographs, uh, which do exactly that. They focus on uh, blacks mm-hmm. in the church. They focus on economics for blacks. They focus on blacks in, uh, in politics and, you know, really looks to describe what's going on for black people. Um, also, in that time frame, he, in 1900, he goes to uh, to Paris, to the Paris Exposition, mm. and he takes a bunch of materials from Tuskegee and Howard and Hampton mm. and, and the major uh, African-American uh, universities around the country, he takes mm-hmm. these materials to the Paris Exposition to try to show what black people look like Mm. Um, what black people are doing in the United States mm-hmm. and win the first prize for, for those materials that he's gathered together. Um, I thought the most fascinating part of, of those materials were all the pictures of the people um, dressed up in, in going to church, where they were working, where they owned businesses, where they owned land, where they were politicians, where they were soldiers mm-hmm. um, in the, in the, uh, in, in the United States, uh, not in necessarily the United States Army, but in the United States. And mm-hmm. so it, it was just a it was a fascinating look at uh, what black people were doing at the turn of that century, uh, which was then the turn of the twentieth century. That is fascinating, and it's good that he had such an international uh, approach to um, 
you know, expressing our experience here in America to Europeans. So I think that's wonderful. Um, also, at that point in time, we we talk about Booker T. Washington and the Atlanta Compromise. Mm-hmm. So and, Booker T. Washington gives the speech in 1895, the Atlanta mm-hmm. Exposition, uh, Cotton Exposition. And at the time, it's interesting because Grandpa really liked Booker T. Washington's speech. He sent him sends him a note. Um, there are copies of a, of a, a note that Grandpa sent to Washington congratulating him on the speech. Mm-hmm. But as time goes on, from from that time till 1903, when Grandpa publishes Souls of Black Folk, and you see the essay of Booker T. Washington and others, in which Grandpa uh, clearly disagrees with the approach that Washington has taken, there is this time frame in in there where Grandpa is assessing. Um, Booker T. Washington assessing many of the things that he's saying and, and he's doing and how he's going about it and comes obviously to a disagreement um, that causes Grandpa to write Booker T. Washington of uh, Booker T. Washington and others and Souls of Black Folk and also to work with other folks to um, put together the organization that we came to know as the Niagara Movement in 1905. Right. Okay, so let's talk about, for people who don't know, Let's talk about the ideology of Booker T. Washington and then the ideology of Dr. Du Bois. Um, I guess the the easiest way to for me to kind of encapsulate that in a in a short way is mm-hmm. that Booker T. Washington had an idea about education of black people that was primarily related to them being educated in trades. So being educated in bricklaying and farming and and some of the the more technical trades of the day, mm-hmm. and he he perceived that education happening for them in their own segregated schools, um, and he also saw that as being the kind of the means to an end in terms of them ultimately achieving some kind of economic independence, and that's the point at which I think. Grandpa and and Booker T. Washington really separate company in terms of their belief systems Mm -hmm. because Grandpa truly believed that the only way that they were going to achieve economic independence was if they both had those those, uh, basic technical education pieces down Mm -hmm. as well as being given college education because he believed that black people were worthy uh, and smart enough to do that as well as achieving uh, the the right to vote and the right to have all have control over their own destinies mm-hmm. and that's the point at which Du Bois and, and Washington kind of butted heads because Washington really believed that uh, black people should as he said you know put their put their buckets down where they were and in the south and continue to support the the southern economy and continue to to do things that would would help. Um, support the way the, the country was going at the time, which was really based on the economy of the South and the economy of, of cheap labor labor related mm-hmm. to slaves or indentured servants. And so that was really, uh, from Grandpa's perspective, a way of saying, you know, don't rock the boat, don't, you know, don't push for too much more than what we already have. Mm-hmm. Let's just do what we can do where we are. And Grandpa just simply didn't agree with that. Hmm. Okay, and then thus the Niagara Movement begins in 1905, and Correct. that is um, Dr. Du Bois with uh, several other civil rights activists, mm-hmm. uh, Frederick yep. uh, L. McKee, Jesse Max Barber, William mm-hmm. Monroe Trotter. They all met right. in, um, in Canada near Niagara Falls, correct? 
Right. Yes. Okay. They wanted to meet uh, in the United States, but you know, black people were black men were not allowed to uh, stay in hotel rooms and to have meetings of, of that nature uh, during that time frame. And so they ended up meeting in Niagara Falls, Canada. Their second meeting, as it turned out, happened in um, in uh, Harpers Ferry, Virginia. Uh, a mm-hmm. number of years later, but um, at that time, in, in what they were able to do, they were only able to meet in Niagara Falls, Canada at the time. Mm-hmm. Huh. Okay. And the whole gist of the Niagara Movement uh-huh. was? The gist of the Niagara Movement was to really lay down a set of um you know, demands. I'm not gonna. Right. I'm not gonna sugarcoat it. Yeah, because <laughs> um, we didn't sugarcoat it. Yeah, they laid down it. a set of demands for mm-hmm. for you know what they wanted. They the things that they wanted were were economic independence. They wanted the right to control their own destinies. They wanted the right to vote. They wanted the right to to you know, in Grandpa's words, ride the trains as free men. Um, you know, so we see later in the fifties, we see the the the. Rosa Parks not wanting to move from her seat. Mm-hmm. People have to remember when the Niagara Movement was founded in 1905. You know, we weren't even allowed to be on uh, the train and ride in a in a in a quote unquote Negro car or ride in a bus that didn't that didn't exist um, at the back of the bus. And so those kinds of things were were not part and parcel of of what we had as right. And they were fighting for all of those. And on top of it, um, as I was reading, um, the constant theme of lynchings are occurring during this time, too. And I know right. your grandfather was truly against that that practice that was just kind of permeated throughout the United States, and it was and it seemed to be okay. I think that that whole point is is uh, again one that is sort of underplayed in, in the consciousness of Americans. And that is that the, the uh, Niagara Movement, the NAACP, the Urban League, mm-hmm. and, you know, dozens of other organizations were started from about uh, 1905 running all the way through the 1920s around just that singular idea of anti-lynching. Um, it really is quite a fascinating thing to see these 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 upsurges in lynching, both in the South as well as in the North, that were occurring that really incited black people to step forward and say, no, this isn't this isn't an appropriate thing to do. Now, mm-hmm. it, it seems to us from our um, uh, distance of over 100 years from, from some of this stuff that, you know, how crazy is that to think in those terms that this would be something appropriate to do? But uh, I refer people to a website uh, called withoutsanctuary.com if you have any doubts whatsoever about the the, the atrocities that were being committed in those days. So Mm -hmm. uh, the website collected, uh, continues to collect pictures of lynchings uh, that were in Mm -hmm. circulation at the time, uh, many of which were circulated as if they were um, postcards from Mm -hmm. somewhere. Um, Mm -hmm. And so... I think that when you when you see people like Ida B. Wells stepping forward and, and Du Bois and Trotter and you know many other leaders from that time to to fight against lynching, it is it is singularly the 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 kind of 
touchstone for all of them. They may have disagreed about a number of different things. They may have disagreed about the way to go about it, mm-hmm. but they none of them disagreed that that was something that needed to, to end in the United States. Mm-hmm. Okay. Because um, what, what I read also, in, it said in 1906, basically, um, African American, what helped kind of um, get the national view more towards um, your grandfather's stance about equality and representation is that there was um, African Americans were shocked of, regarding different atrocities that happened. First, that Teddy, President Teddy Roosevelt, dishonorably charged, discharged 167 black soldiers um, as a result of a Brownsville affair, some riot that broke out within, you know, within the um, within the military, and then mm-hmm. I guess there were. Um, unions, you know, white workers were kind of um, disenfranchised that they were bringing in black, cheaper labor. So, you know, you had a lot of um, riots and, and killings based on that. So uh, it, 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 what I read, it seemed like the essence was that, you know, this whole thing of just to, to stay there to kind of get along and we're going to get jobs and, be, and it's going to be peaceful doesn't really work. You really need to have um, your own civil rights, your own uh, establishment, that you are worthy and are, are you know, a human and American and part of the system in order to move forward. Am I correct in that? Or? Absolutely right on the money. I think that's the, the main thing that ends up coming out of uh, the slavery period you, is, is people should remember that black people were considered property. They weren't considered people. They weren't considered human coming out of slavery. Mm-hmm. And even though slavery supposedly ends in, you know, 1865, mm-hmm. even though we're talking something like 35 to 40 years later, that still has not been removed from the American consciousness. We still in that time frame did not believe that black people were 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 free that they were real that they were um they were something some they were people who do, to do, who deserved to be treated well um i'm reading from a uh let's see here something that grandpa wrote in 1905 as they were launching the niagara movement mm-hmm. um what now are the principles upon which the membership of the niagara movement are agreed as set forth briefly in the constitution they are freedom of speech and criticism an unfettered and unsubsidized press Manhood suffrage, the abolition of caste distinctions based simply on race and color, the mm-hmm. recognition of the principle of human brotherhood as a practical present creed, the recognition of the highest and best training as the monopoly of no class or race, a belief in the dignity of labor, and lastly, united effort to realize these ideals under wise and courageous leadership. Um, and so those are those were the principles under which they belonged to this uh, Niagara movement, and those were the things that they were asking for. Basically, um, some of the precursors to the Civil Rights Act, correct? What, what ultimately ends up being the, the case is the Niagara movement becomes the precursor to uh, the NAACP, which is founded mm-hmm. in 1909 mm-hmm. um, and uh, renamed the NAACP in 1910. And yes, all of those things become the platform for which uh, people fight for, continue to fight for civil rights. It becomes the platform under which we uh, look at Brown versus Board of Education in '54, and mm-hmm. it's the platform for the Civil Rights Act in '64. Right, and um, I also read too that the reason that they used um, national advancement of colored people, it was based on your grandfather's suggestion to use colored rather than black. 
um, because he meant to include to be inclusive, all colored people throughout, you know, the nation. Which That's I thought precisely right. Yeah, that which is, I thought was right. yeah, which I thought was it, it was it was not. It's he wasn't just focused on you know our struggle, but all all minorities basically. Mm-hmm. Yeah, okay. I mean, because you, you re- remember then at that time too that what you had where you had African-American people, so people who had been brought to this country um, as slaves and who were now free, but you also had this influx of uh, people of African descent, whether they were coming from the Caribbean or South America or continuing to come from Africa or coming from Europe. So you had people, uh, black people here of all types who were not just Negroes or African Americans. Mm-hmm. In addition to that, you had Native American peoples here. You had people who were from Puerto Rico. You had people who were here from Mexico, and they were all brown people. People from Asian countries who were brown people who were being treated poorly, also. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, you know, it is not at all uh, an issue of just Negroes or just African Americans, just black people. Mm-hmm. The other part of that puzzle, too, uh, that people have to remember is that the, when you look at the list of the founders uh, of the NAACP, you look at the, the primary founders, they are white people. They are white mm-hmm. socialists. They are mm-hmm. white Jewish folks who um, who are are very anti-lynching, who are very concerned with the direction that the country is going as it relates to black people because they see that as a failing that the country isn't really meeting up to its principles. Mhm. Mhm. Yeah, I think so. I think a lot of black people are people in general weren't aware that of the white involvement, you're right, of the NAACP. Mhm. And that they were the early executives, correct? Mhm. Okay. That's exactly right. Okay. And then your grandfather's position at the NAACP was? Initially, he was the editor of the Crisis Magazine. And Mm -hmm. so as the editor of the Crisis Magazine, starting in 1910 and running until he left the NAACP in 1934, Mm -hmm. he edited the Crisis Magazine and and really was, I think, the the primary voice for the, the NAACP. And that... You know that caused some controversies at times, and got to times, and got him in trouble at times, and you know the rest. But at the same time, he became the person who publishes many of the uh, initial uh, writers and poets of the national of the uh, the Harlem Renaissance, for instance. Mm-hmm. Uh, he becomes this national voice for for protest um, in in the face of all of the things that uh, the NAACP wants to do and doesn't want to do. Um, they move to an agenda that is, is more legal, uh, more based in, in legal controversies, and that's, you know, that's part and partial of why Grandpa leaves in, in 34. But mm-hmm. he does come back again in 45, and when he comes back, he is the, uh, the head of their research uh, arm, and uh, that's a clear um, distinction related to his work in sociology and his work in categorizing what blacks were doing in the country from uh, the beginning of his career. So. Okay, and, and ask me, let, let me know if you agree with this, because I read that it said, it said throughout his writings, um, Dr. Du Bois supported women's rights, but found it difficult to publicly endorse the women's right to vote movement because leaders of the suffrage movement refused to support the fight against racial injustice. Is that accurate? 
I would say that's partially accurate because I don't. Mm-hmm. I I have found places where Grandpa has publicly supported women's women's suffrage, but mm-hmm. I know that there was some of that kind of controversy too, where he was looking for support from that from that group to say, okay, here is where you know here's where we are together, here's where we are fighting for the same cause, mm-hmm. and I don't think he's found as much support among the women suffragettes as um, he would have liked to have seen. But uh, I don't think Grandpa hesitated to to fight and advocate for um, women's suffrage in public and, and in his writings at all. Okay. And then World War One occurs, mm-hmm. and I know that the crisis um, is concerned about the um, – well, in the crisis, he writes about his concern about the black soldiers and their treatment in World War One. Mm-hmm. Um, can you elaborate on that? I think the 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 World War One situation was really kind of a watershed in many ways for this country because what ends up happening is you end up having black soldiers segregated and fighting almost as cannon fodder in in many battles, and that's part uh, part of the puzzle. Um, you have uh, the blacks being led by white officers who you know, are following orders that aren't necessarily uh, in the best interests of their soldiers. Mm-hmm. Um, and then on top of all of that, after they've been sent to Europe uh, to fight uh, gallantly and valiantly for the country, uh, country's freedom and the country's ideals, they come back to this country and they are not given the rights that they fought for. They, they're not given the full rights of other people in this country. And I think that's the point at which, really, we see the clashes starting to happen. And around 1918, uh, the red summer of 1919, you mm-hmm. really start to see that many people are, are, are coming back from the war, many black men are coming back from the war, and they are, they are completely uh, disillusioned about the way that they would be treated when they got home. Yeah, understandably so. And mm-hmm. then your grandfather goes and travels to Europe and attends the first Pan-African Conference? Um, the first Pan-African Congress actually happens uh, in 1900. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that the Pan-African movement, again, is a very interesting thing that you know, Grandpa gets involved in. Mm-hmm. Um, it really is, again, and, I, and sometimes I, when I'm talking to students, I have to remind them that the African nations of that time frame are all colonized. The first Mm -hmm. African nation doesn't gain independence until Ghana's independence in 1957. Mm -hmm. And so that that whole movement around Pan-Africanism is Grandpa's way of, again, internationalizing the struggle of African-Americans with Negroes in the United States. So it's not just about the Negro here. It's about how can we make sure that the home that we came from is free of colonial rule. And he works with people like H.G. Wells and Kwame Nkrumah and Yomo Kenyatta to to make those Afri- those uh, Pan-African Congresses happen. Okay, and then his meeting with Marcus Garvey. <sighs> Marcus Garvey. <laughs> <laughs> and that's been, the, that's been the controversy on Facebook today. And so, uh-huh. um, you know, I really find the whole Marcus Garvey question to be somewhat fascinating from the perspective that that you know 
okay, we can we can sit around and we can debate the differences that Grandpa and Marcus Garvey have, um, and and that's all well and good. But I, I think sometimes the debate turns vitriolic, and and we don't actually realize that Du Bois had some very good things to say about economics, that Garvey had some very good things to say about economics, that Booker T. Washington had some very good things to say about economics. Mm -hmm. And all of these years later, over 100 years later from that time frame, we are still debating the things that they said then and whether one was right or the other was wrong. My point in this now, here today, is that Marcus Garvey had some excellent things to say about black economic independence. So did Booker T. Washington, so did W.E.B. Du Bois. And we today, African Americans in the United States, cannot afford, and I'll say that again, we cannot afford to set aside the wisdom that those men brought to us, or the wisdom of somebody like a Madam C.J. Walker, or the wisdom of somebody like an Ida B. Wells, or any of those great leaders through that time that told us many, many ways to achieve that economic independence. We simply can't continue to have this debate. Mm -hmm. It's not, it's a waste of, it's not a waste of our time. It's a waste of our time if we don't learn from each other and learn from those great leaders. Now, did Grandpa agree with the direction that Marcus Garvey took? Initially, he agreed with Marcus Garvey, and they got along well. But mm-hmm. eventually, the promises that Marcus Garvey was making didn't come to fruition, and that's what Grandpa called him on. He called him on those promises in two articles that he wrote in the Crisis Magazine, one in December of 1920 and, and the other in uh, January of 1921, in which he asked Marcus Garvey to to, to step up and show show the black people who he was talking to and who he's taking money from where this all was going, where all of his ideas were headed. And that's the point at which Marcus Garvey and Du Bois divide and go in different directions because Grandpa is, I think, rightfully demanding that Garvey step up and say, this is how I'm spending your money. This is where it's going. This is who owns these ships. This is what is being spent on what in what ways. And that that didn't come out. Oh, okay. Wow. <laughs> I, I just I tell people, you know, the the articles from nineteen the nineteen nineteen crisis and nineteen twenty crisis. If you can't find the crisis from that time, they can be found in a book uh, that Philip uh, Foner wrote called W. E. B. Du Bois speaks, and he he gives the speeches and addresses and and some of the articles that Grandpa wrote. Um, it's a two-part thing. One part is um, 1890 to 1919, and the other part is 1920 to 1963. Mm-hmm. And the, the stuff on Marcus Garvey is uh, chapter 2, uh, page 10 of the second volume from 1920 to 1963. So you can see what Grant, well, read for yourself what Grant was asking for. I don't think, I personally don't think that the demands that he was making on Garvey are unreasonable um, or were unreasonable at the time. And so I think at some levels, People just have to stop, step back and say, okay, they disagreed. They were taking different approaches to, to those things at that time. And, you know, they they 
hashed them out in the way that people hashed them out in, the, in those days, uh, typically in writing and through the press, much like we do it today. Right. But um, okay. interestingly enough to me, I think uh, mm-hmm. over time, and a number of, of the Garvey folks uh, have said this uh, over Facebook today, uh, a gentleman was saying this, that Grandpa came to, to see Marcus Garvey's mm-hmm. approaches as being valuable later on in his life uh, in this gentleman particularly points to a 1934 mm-hmm. article that Grandpa had written. And I I see that Grandpa, over his lifetime, changed his mind about a lot of things. He did. He changed his approach to to economics in a, right. a couple of different times. He yes, changed his I did approach read that, to... Arthur. I did mm-hmm. read that. Excuse me, excuse me. But sure. I just want to okay. let you know <laughs> that we do have callers, okay? And sure. I see I'm you. sure you do. <laughs> <laughs> I see I'm the callers out the there, and I just wanted to find out, where are you willing to field phone calls from oh, the audience? You are. Yeah, okay. Okay, great. Okay, so at some point in time, we will be having callers. So if you callers be patient, we will get to you. Okay, now when did your um, grandfather take the stance of socialism? I know he, you know, he met with uh, different um Different uh, Chinese, you know, leaders, leaders in China, leaders in various countries. He did adopt uh, some socialist principles. Um, can you talk a little bit about that? Initially, Grandpa didn't think that socialism was uh, the way to go. Now, I think again, the thing you have to understand is that he studied with Karl Marx, with mm-hmm. Karl Marx. It at the University of Berlin, and so he understood what Marx had learned. He understood the directions that was going. He understood where world socialism was headed, and so he had a very good grounding in what was going on with socialism at, at the time. And I think we have to, as Americans, understand what socialism really meant, and that was this whole the workers shall rise up kind of business and the whole concept that workers really needed to be united in order to be successful at having the power to control their own destinies. And so that was a, an economic and workers-related um, movement. He didn't think that that was going to be successful initially, but in fact, his life went on and he tried different things to try to combat corporate America and try to combat uh, American politics, he finally turned to socialism as being potentially an answer uh, because he felt like people needed to organize, they needed to unite, they needed to come together in order to, to fight against large corporations who, you know, had basically taken over at well, the time. From, from my readings, it sounded like um, he felt that capitalism was a main crux of, you know, keeping uh, I guess the 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 colored uh, minority down to to so to speak. I mean, exactly. Yes, you agree with that, or yes, I agree with yes. that. Okay, okay. Yeah, I mean, was... he he writes later on in his life. Um, he writes about the the powerful uh, governments and the power powerful in in the world uh, monopolizing the industry, and and that's uh, in 1951. He he really. Interestingly enough, he chooses to wait until uh, until the, the kind of the McCarthy era to, mm-hmm. to, to step up and stand out and say, you know, hold on for a second, uh, they don't have it all wrong, uh, which of course gets him in trouble and gets his passport taken from him, which is a whole other issue. But um, 
he really did believe that uh, the enemy at some point was uh, the the corporate America and that the working class really needed to unite and demand better wages, decent housing, and employment. And I think that's the, the kind of stuff that you see in his change in his mind and changing his approach. Mm-hmm. I like to think that, that my grandfather tried practically everything that he could think of to fight against injustice and oppression in this, in, in this country and around the world. And that made him appear to, to be something of a, 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 a person who couldn't quite nail down the direction that he wanted to take. I don't think that's the case for him at all. I think he wanted to try everything at hand in order to make, uh, make the changes happen that he thought uh, should happen. And what was his feelings on the black church? You know, there's a lot made out of Grandpa and the church, and it's like, okay. You know, I think people want to make him out to be this atheist, you know, agnostic, anti-religious kind of person, and Mm -hmm. I don't think that was the case at all. I think he was religious. I think he did believe in God. I think he did believe in the power and the importance of the black church. I think what he didn't believe in, however, was that that was the only route to get to what he was looking for. He believed in science. He believed in the data. He believed in the ability to go out and study these things and combat these things with knowledge and intellect. When you look back at what he did with the Philadelphia Negro um, mm-hmm. back in 1896, you have to be able to see this is the, the, the W.E.P. Du Bois who is going to go through the entire rest of his life, and mm-hmm. he is going to quote the statistics to you. He's going to give you the numbers, and he is going to fight against injustice with his mind, not just with his religion. Okay. And, you know, I need to regress because I <laughs> forgot to ask you about the whole concept of the Talented Tenth. Could you just kind of um, elaborate on what the Talented has meant and what direction did he want the talented tenth to take? And uh, another one of those places where Grandpa is is often misquoted and misunderstood, <laughs> in my opinion. Um, <laughs> that you know, I think he saw the talented tenth as being a group of people who would lead um, the other ninety percent of black people um, out of uh, racism and out of injustice. He saw them not as people who should be rewarded or people who should take control. He saw them as servants. I think that is the if When people ask me about the influence that my grandfather has had over my life, that mm-hmm. is the one place that I point them to. I point them to his words about service, his words about how black people needed to be served by their leaders, not just led not mm-hmm. just taught, not just told, not mm-hmm. just bullied, but led in service to black people. And that is the role of the talent attempt. Well, I can tell you, the body of work, uh, this man, did he ever sleep? Because he was very, <laughs> he was very, sure. very busy. I was like, oh, my goodness. Yeah, he wrote, and he wrote a lot of things, and he said a lot of things, and you know, one, one, one of these days what I would like to sit down and do is find out how much time he spent on boats. Because, you know, we didn't have airplanes in those days. We yeah. didn't have the Internet. There's so many things that we take for granted today that when you look at the different numbers of times that that man went between the United States and Europe, he spent years of his life just on boats. 
you know, thankfully he could still write and do things while mm-hmm. he was on a boat going somewhere. But I mean, it just is a, it amazes me the kinds of things that he delved into during his lifetime. I still learn every time I do a talk somewhere with people. I learned something new about something my grandfather was into. And I'm like, that, really? <laughs> that is wonderful. Well, he was into so much. <laughs> in a good way, in a good way. But we do Absolutely. have our first caller. So, um, he was into so much. Hello, caller? Hello, caller number one, caller. Hello? Hi there. Okay, what's your question to Arthur McFarland, please? Hello? Hi. Number one, caller. Yes. Hello? Hi there. Okay, what's your question to Arthur? It sounds like the caller has the, has the, the your show on and what we're hearing oh, is the okay. delay. Okay, okay. Please be patient with the background noise and um, please turn down. Your computer, so that we could get your question to Mr. McFarland, please. Hello. Hello. There we go. Hello. Hi there. How are you? Caller number one. What's your name? Uh, my name is Earl Pinto. Okay, Earl. And where are you calling from? Uh, New York City. New York City. Okay. And what is your question, sir? Uh, actually, I don't have a question. I have a uh, something to add. My name is Earl Pinto. Again, I'm the uh, founder of the New York African American Historical Society, mm-hmm. and one of my neighbors was a neighbor of of the boy in Ghana, and he tells the story about how he used to help um, the boys with Dr. Du Bois with little chores in the late the early sixties, I think he said. And one time he came and visited Du Bois and saw him doing geometry and asked why and Du Bois responded by saying because the mind is like any muscle if it's not used it atrophies and I found that story so fascinating uh, in that in his late, later in his life how he still exercised his mind even through doing geometry and I thought I would like to share that on this program. That's a wonderful story. Arthur, would yeah. you like to comment? <laughs> Thank you very much for that story. Again, like I say, I, I every time I do something around Grandpa, I learn something new about him. And so that is that is a story that I had not heard before, but it absolutely does not surprise me. That is exactly the kind of thing that Grandpa would say and that he would do and the kind of thing that I think he would try to pass on and teach someone else. Wonderful story. Thank you you so much. Is there another caller? Hello? Okay, I guess that was our last caller. So he spoke of Ghana. So let's talk Mm -hmm. about Ghana and your grandfather. So Grandpa starts working with the Pan-African group, and part of that group is uh, Kwame Nkrumah, who becomes later in 57 the first president of, of Ghana, um, so they are friends, and what ends up happening, the thing that ends up dr- drawing Grandpa to um, to Ghana is he has been working for a number of, of years on something that he called the Encyclopedia Africana. Mm-hmm. And what um, 
Kwame Nkrumah does is he invites Grandpa to Ghana in his later years to uh, finish, or you know, just essentially to finish the Encyclopedia Africana. Um, the thing that's interesting there is it relates back to something I alluded to earlier, which is Grandpa loses his, his passport as part of the whole McCarthy period and some work that he's done with um, uh, the Peace Information Center and with socialists and communists in this country. And so what ends up happening later um, in 1960 is that he hears from friends who are working in the government uh, that uh, the government is getting ready to take his passport again. And so he, instead of going through that indignity again, he decides to accept Kwame Nkrumah's offer, offer to come to Ghana and to write the Encyclopedia Africana. So the thing that I always like to, to work with and work talking to young people is Grandpa was born in 1868. He gets this invitation and he moves to Ghana in 1961. So, you know, how old does that make him? And, of course, it, it makes him 93 years old. Wow. I don't know too many 93-year-olds who go some to a foreign country and start writing encyclopedias. <laughs> so, I'm, I'm just saying. I, I'm, not, I'm just throwing that out there. <laughs> you know, I, I would be thinking of doing something else at 93 uh, as opposed to writing an encyclopedia, but I'm not my great-grandfather. And so, you know, bottom line is he never stopped. He never gave up. He never quit on the idea that he could somehow, some way, through some means, achieve independence and justice for African people in this in the world. He was Period. a tireless worker that I think um a lot of people just don't realize his contribution to the world. Not only mm-hmm. to the United States but to the world. Because he was truly um global in his thinking. Do you agree? Absolutely. I I do, and in fact, I'm going to be giving a talk to a, a group uh, next week uh, around what was the influence that Grandpa had over the fight for rights that the that people with disabilities have had throughout history mm-hmm. here in the United States. And I want to talk to them about exactly what you're talking about, how the work that he was doing laid the groundwork for going in and, and getting something called the American American with Disabilities Act, how that the groundwork in civil rights around the NAACP created the the kind of legal structure, the kind of legal pathway that people took to get rights for uh, for people with disabilities during that time, and how people with disabilities turned to communities of color for support because mm-hmm. it wasn't only black people, but it was Chicanos fighting for rights for uh, mm-hmm. Chicano workers. And it's the same fight, it's the same path that is being taken today by uh, gays and lesbians. As we start to look at the LGBTQ issues, right. we know and we realize that they are taking exactly the same path that black people took in, in you know the early 1900s. Now, I'm going to say it before you ask the question or if you don't okay. ask the question. What do I think about where black people are with the gay movement? I think black people often enough should be ashamed of themselves in terms of the way we have turned our backs on a group of people who deserve our support and our our concentrated support because their effort, their fight is the same fight that we fought 50, 100 years ago. 
Okay, now Arthur, you're getting. <laughs> I'm either you're getting ahead of you or going somewhere. You really don't want to go. Stirring up the stew. <laughs> Of what happened the, the the first time he parted ways with the NAACP and the second time he parted ways with the NAACP. Just because the organization is still you know viable today, let's just clear that up. Okay. Mm-hmm. I think he I think he had number a number of differences with the NAACP. Um, probably, I would say starting in um, probably the late 1920s that came to a head in the 1930s and 1934. And so I think, I don't want to, I don't, I know that a number of um, African-American historians and Du Bois scholars would like to, to point to one event or two events that caused the break. I don't think it was like that. I think Grandpa was a person who spoke his mind. He was a person who had, had very strong beliefs in the direction that things should go, and then he ran into differences with the executive board of the NAACP in the late 20s and, and early 30s, and mm-hmm. eventually they saw that uh, they believed that the things he was saying were too radical for them, that it was too, too uh, outspoken for them, and that they relied more on um, not to put too fine a point on it, but the largesse of, of life, and they did not want to put that in, in danger. They also didn't want to put in danger their their legal agenda that they were pursuing. Um, and at some levels, I'm sure that's probably uh, that was probably a good decision for the NAACP because obviously it allowed the NAACP to continue to have its legal fund and its legal branch that resulted in the 1954, 55, 72. Uh, sorry, 71 Brown versus Board of Education decisions, and we can have that conversation again some other time too. Okay. But I think that I think that part of that was the stuff that really caused Grandpa to say, you know, maybe okay. I'm not in the right place. Okay, because <laughs> I believe the first right, because I believe the first the first breakup with the NAAC, NAACP was kind of focused on the fact that he had a, like a separatist. Um, idea where he you know he didn't the whole integration thing wasn't really a focus he thought well maybe it's better that we do have our own and get our own and build up our own i could be incorrect on that you can you can correct me i think that's part i think that's part of where what direction uh the direction that grandpa felt like we needed to go was a black unity perspective, not necessarily a black nationalist perspective, right. but a black unity perspective. Right. And I think that was part of was part of where he went uh, awry okay. of them. Okay. And then the second time, it was more of his uh, embracing kind of like the communism, socialism type platform that made maybe some of the NAACP a little nervous. Am I correct? I think it made them very nervous, and I think that was an interesting thing that happened in that time frame because they were not being honest about their own origins mm-hmm. in socialist black background mm-hmm. uh, of their of their own of the other uh, founders of the NACP. So I mean, I I thought they were I thought they were being a little bit too you know kind of talking out of both sides of their neck, but you know it it, it was enough for Grandpa to say, you know, no, I don't need to do this either. Okay, so are you ready to take the next caller? 
Sure. Okay, and this is out of area code 937. Caller, please. Hello? Hello, hello. I must have said something like this. Oh, they oh, okay. I'm sorry. They must they hung up. Okay. Maybe we had them waiting a little too long. I apologize, yeah. caller, for having you wait too long. I'll try to be more um timely in getting the calls on, okay? Um all right, so let's talk about how many now how many times was Doctor Du Bois married? Oh, I'm sorry. the caller is back. I'm sorry. Caller? Hello? Hello, hello, caller 937. Hello? Okay, maybe they hung up again. Okay, this is very interesting. Bear with me, Arthur. I appreciate your patience. Okay. All right. So how many um how many times was uh Dr. Du Bois married? He was married twice. Um, mm-hmm. He was married to Nina Gomer, was his first wife, and um, mm-hmm. then he married Shirley Graham um, mm-hmm. later in his life. After his first wife died, his first wife died um, in fifty, nineteen fifty, and then mm-hmm. he remarried in fifty one. Okay, and you are the product of. So my my linkage to Du Bois comes mm-hmm. through my mother's side of the family. So okay. grandpa's grandpa had a son, Burghardt, mm-hmm. who uh, died because the white doctors wouldn't treat him in Atlanta when he got ill. Oh, um, and then he had his second second child was Yolande, mm-hmm. um, and she was born in 1900. Mm-hmm. Then Yolande had one daughter um, who was my mother, uh, mm-hmm. who was born in 1932. And mm-hmm. then I am my mother's second child. Uh, I was born in 1957. Okay, 1957. Okay. Now, and, and how how often were you around your 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 grandfather? Um, he left the country in '61. I have mm-hmm. a number of pictures with him, um, mm-hmm. including the one that is has been out for this show, yes. which is the one in '61 where which shows uh, me with his cousin Alice Crawford and him uh, at the airport just as he's getting ready to leave. It was then called Idlewild Field, but it's now called JFK Airport in New York. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so that's the last time I saw him. Mm-hmm. I have a number of pictures with him, including one uh, when I was in front of newborn. And uh, he's holding me, and my mother is standing to his right on the left side of the picture. And his uh, his daughter is standing uh, to his left on the right side of the picture. So there's four generations of my family um, from Du Bois to me uh, there in the same picture. Mm, okay. So, well, I didn't know my grandpa much. I mean, I didn't. I, I don't remember much of him because yeah, I was four, yeah. four years old when he left. Yeah, but I exactly. I read a lot about him, and uh, mm-hmm. one of the things that he did when he was his he was ninety years old in February of eight, of nineteen sixty of nineteen fifty eight, mm-hmm. and I was born Christmas of nineteen fifty seven. So I was okay. only a couple three months old when mm-hmm. he turned ninety, and he talked to me about uh, his his advice to me as his great grandson. Uh, which can also be found in the, the Fauner book that I mentioned earlier, W.E.B. Du Bois Speaks. He um, has uh, that advice to a great-grandson is, is one of the essays in that book. Oh. It also can be found in Grandpa's last 
autobiography, the posthumously published uh, autobiography of W.E.B. Du Bois, which was published in 1968. Wonderful. Wow, that's wonderful. Can you just, well, I know you said he left a legacy of just service that uh, for you, but is there anything in that essay that he left for you that just stands in the mind besides that? Um, I think the real thing that Grandpa said to me, and I and I often pass this on to um, to to young people, is the concept that that you should find work that the need the world needs to have done, and work that you enjoy doing. Those were the two big pieces of of the advice that Grandpa gave me: work that the world needs to have done, and work that you enjoy doing. It should be you know the same thing. And the other part of that advice, I think, is that he he really is saying to me that you may find that you may find that work that you that you really uh, enjoy doing. But he says this, and now comes the word of warning: the satisfaction with your work, even at best, will never be complete, since nothing on earth can be perfect. The forward pace of the world which you are pushing will be painfully slow. But what of that? The difference between a hundred and a thousand years is less than you think. But doing what work must be done, that is eternal, even when it walks with poverty. Wow. He also says in this, um, the work, the return from your work must be the satisfaction which that work brings you and the world's need of that work. With this, life is heaven the world, and as near heaven as you can get. Without this, the work which you despise which bores you, which the world does not need, this life is hell. Um, he says that the reward is not in money. It is in satisfaction. It is in creation. It is in mm-hmm. beauty. It is the supreme sense of the world of men going forward, lurch and stagger though it may, but slowly, inevitably going forward. And you, you yourself with your hand on the wheel. So that's the kind of, that's all in this advice that he gives that, um, at the Roosevelt Hotel in, uh, in February. And that, that is insightful and just, <laughs> that's wonderful. It really is. And I think we need to end the show on that. I mean, you can't, <laughs> that's great <laughs> advice that, that, you know, pertains today that he gave you that the rest of us could use. And that's mm-hmm. wonderful. Thank you so much, Arthur McFarland. We Thank really you so much appreciate it. Yes, all your insights on your great-grandfather. What a true gift to this nation. And I sure hope, I, I do see some of the honors that he, he has received. Is there any honor that he's received that you're especially proud of? Because we need to acknowledge the, the greatness of this man. And what he's done, not only for black people, but for all colored people around the world. Um, I really appreciated the the, uh, the Spingard Award being given to Grandpa. Uh, mm-hmm. So the Spingarn Medal is something that the NAACP is out. And they, mm-hmm. they gave it to him for his work with the Pan-African movement, interestingly enough. Mm-hmm. And I think that you, you, when you look at if you go in you just Google the, the, the Spingarn Medal and you see the list of names that is associated with the Spingarn Award over the years, that is like a who's who of African-American history. It is something... Mm-hmm. I think most people really really don't know about and really have not seen before and really should take a take a hard look and see those names and what those people do did over their lives um George Washington Carver James Weldon Johnson Charles Char- uh, Carter G Woodson um John Hope Walter White 
Marian Anderson, Paul Robeson, Charles Drew. Um, you know, the names just go on and on and on. Jackie mm-hmm. Robinson, Martin Luther King, like mm-hmm. you, uh, Kenneth B. Clark. I mean, just huge names in African-American history. And Grandpa's name is on that list, and I think I think it's just a, a, an incredible honor. All a part of that talented tent. <laughs> oh, yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. <laughs> so on that note, again, um, Arthur McFarland, thank you so much for your time this evening. We really, really appreciate it. And this is Shelley Gaines for The Gist of Freedom um, signing off. And I'd just like to let you all know that your story is history and share your glory. Good night. Thank you. Good. Thank you very much. Thank you.